And we're continuing our series, again, looking at men and women, and particularly men and women in regards to their conduct and their behavior. And so as we do that, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us and your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us by your word. And we pray this evening that as we read your word, as we come to this passage, that you give us clarity of thoughts, that you would be encouraging us, and that we would not harden our hearts to what you have to say, that we would listen, that the word would dwell in us richly, that we might know how to live as your people, as men and women in this world. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I just heard someone groan just then. It's one of those well-known books back in the like, late 80s or early 90s. It was really popular. Uh, that a mother would give to their daughter when they started dating, that a, a wife might give to their husband to say, you need to understand me better, so read this. Or a husband might read, give to their wife and say, you need to understand me better, so give me, read this. The concept of the book is that men and women seem so different to each other, it's like they're from a different planet altogether. Like men and women are like different species. And we need a way of kind of like decoding, if you will, each other's behavior, learning how to translate and interpret in a way that makes sense to us. Now, in response to this really strong stereotyping, our society has moved away completely from this idea to suggest that there is no real difference between men and women, that our social differences are more of just a construct of society itself at large rather than inherent to who we are. So rendering moot gender roles and even gender itself. So our world goes two ways. It either collapses gender in and of itself, or we view each other as so different that we're a foreign text that has to be kind of interpreted and translated. But neither do justice to our experience nor provide a way forward for us as we are men and women relating to each other. The gospel expresses unity in difference, upholding God's unique design for men and women, showing how he redeems our relationships and behavior and our view of ourselves for the sake of the gospel. And this evening, we're going to continue in our series looking at the, how the gospel shapes our behavior as men and women in a world ruled by sin and how the gospel provides a way forward, unlike our world does. Now to note, to begin with, if you've got the passage in front of you, and indeed it was on the screen as well, uh, you'll notice I won't be touching on verses 11 and 12, which talk about a very controversial topic in our diocese, in our churches, about the, the concept and the idea of women teaching, and whether or not a woman should teach a man. I'm not touching on that tonight. Cliff will be talking next week on the question, should women preach? So all power to you, my brother. Go well with that. Tonight, we're just focusing on verses 8 to 10 and looking at the particular conduct of men and women in the church. And so what we'll do tonight is we'll first look at the context we find ourselves in and then we'll dive right in into verses 8 to 10 to see what Paul teaches us about how we can be men and women transformed by the gospel. 
So Paul's writing a letter to a young man called Timothy, a leader of the church in Ephesus, in a very difficult environment. There were some in the church of Ephesus teaching false doctrine and myths, skewing their view of the Old Testament to promote their beliefs, and was causing major disruption. And so Paul calls Timothy to command certain people not to teach in chapter 1, verse 3. We don't know exactly the content of these heresies, what they were actually teaching, but we get an idea that those who held these, these heresies, these doctrines, were causing a lot of disruption. When they invited people to come up and share and give a word or give a prophecy of teaching, these people would get up and share their views, but their views would be so out of alignment to what true faith and doctrine was that it caused a lot of arguments and controversy and speculation to arise in the church. And the church just kind of became a little crazy place for arguments where people couldn't agree upon what the text, what the Bible was saying. Certain people were getting up and doing this kind of thing. And these people, as we learn in verse 7, wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted the positions of, of authority in the church to teach true doctrine as such. They were using the law to justify themselves. But Paul goes on to say uh, in verse 8 or verse 7 that the, 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 the law, the purpose of the law was not to justify themselves, but was made for lawbreakers, to reveal sin and point us to the grace found in the gospel that Paul himself has experienced. As he says in verse 13, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The law of God, in other words, Scripture, when handled correctly, reveals who we are as lawbreakers, as sinners, but also points us to the one who reconciles us to God. Indeed, the Old Testament law has always pointed to God as the one who reconciles his people with himself. And this point is fulfilled in the gospel in Jesus. Understood this way, the law, the scriptures, are a gift to us. They're a means of grace to us. But they need to be understood properly. As Paul says himself in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. A Christian and a Jew can both believe that God's law is good, but it doesn't mean one's use of it is. This is Paul's primary concern when he writes to Timothy in Ephesus. How those who handle God's word use it. Particularly those who lead the church. And Timothy has been confirmed as someone who has the knowledge and understanding of the law. And therefore the ability to communicate it, to handle it correctly, to teach it well. And so Paul gives him all kinds of instructions of what church life should look like including those who should have the authority to teach, what they should look like. He also tells them about how men and women should behave in the church, how to treat widows and elders in the church, how slaves and masters should treat each other in the church as well. And all throughout these chapters in this letter, Timothy is sorry, Paul is encouraging Timothy, exhorting him to shut down any controversy, any false teaching that arises in the church. Say in verse 4, so chapter 4, verse 15, be diligent in these matters. 
Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul really encourages him. Watch yourself so you can watch others as well. The goal, of course, is that God's church might know how to be God's church in a sinful world. As Paul says to Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which I think is the key text for understanding this letter. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. There is something about this community that expresses the truth about Jesus, shown not only by what we believe, but how we conduct ourselves, how we act, what we do, thus showing God is doing something in us. So that's the context we are in when we come to these verses in verse 8 to 10. As we look at what our behavior should be as men and women in God's church, we see the goal is that we would express truth, that our church would be a pillar, a foundation of what it means to be truly human in some sense, to be truly the people of God. And that involves the way we act and behave as men and women and what we let uh, define our identity. So, the church in Ephesus had been struggling for a while to be this pillar of truth with everything that was going on. They had allowed the world once again to define who they were as men and women. Both men and women were contributing to the issues at hand, causing disruption in the church. And so Paul instructs them how men and women ought to behave according to the gospel. Challenging, I think, men's tendency to want to be right over having peace and challenging women, women's tendency to want to look good over doing good. Now, as we go through this passage, it will become obvious to us that what ancient men struggle with, I think modern women can say they struggle with as well. And what ancient women struggled with, it'd be fair to say that modern men also struggle with. But Paul's specific application to each arises, I think, out of a culture that has damaging expectations on men and women. Expectations that still exist in a similar way today. And so beginning with the men, he says this in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. The problem particular to the men in the church was that they were praying with unresolved tension and anger between themselves, most likely due to the controversy and speculation surrounding these heresies that were going on at the time. But because they weren't dealing with their anger and tension, they weren't praying in a holy manner before God. They weren't praying consecrated before Him in an honest way. What seemed to be happening was that they were praying as if there was no problem. Praying as if there was no arguments or anger or frustration or tension between each other because of these issues. I remember as a teenager growing up uh, in, in, in Bible study group and youth group, 
I was, I had a, I was a part of a uh, Bible study group with a bunch of my mates, and we were super close. We were all really close friends from high school. We stuck together for about six, seven years or so. But when it came to discussion time in, in Bible study, you might not have thought we were that close. It's amazing how quick discussions can go from just you know, a light-hearted kind of discussion around a passage to a very intense, heated argument about someone's interpretation of a particular passage or doctrine. And most of the time, these discussions would go on for quite a while, but they would be fruitless in the end. They didn't get you anywhere, really, at all. And our leader would try to get us back towards the end, to the main point. And eventually, he would just give up and say, okay, let's just close in prayer. And we would close in prayer. Now, most of us young men would say that even though these discussions can often get quite heated and quite robust, uh, that there was nothing personal at all. That there's no bitterness, no tension, no frustration. We were all cool with each other, even though we were just yelling at each other the last five minutes. But I've got to tell you, during prayer, I was probably quite often very bitter still. Still very frustrated about the discussion that had unfolded. That my friend Andrew didn't understand what I was trying to say about predestination. That my friend Alex didn't get what I was talking about in terms of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. You can tell I've really dealt with this, can you? <laughs> it's still, I'm still struggling with it now. I was distracted, so distracted in prayer time because I hadn't dealt with my anger, I hadn't dealt with my frustration, I hadn't dealt with the tension that existed between me and my fellow brothers in Christ. And yet here I was praying pretending that everything was fine. I don't think I'm alone in this. And I think this is an issue common for both men and women. We all at times come before God not having first dealt with the anger and frustration that's in our hearts. But the reason why Paul specifically mentions men is because we're in a culture where being respected, being right, is of most importance to men. Any kind of display of humility for the sake of holiness is seen as weakness. And I think this idea of men is still true today for us. When our views are challenged, we have a tendency to want to be proven right. I know that's how I felt when I was growing up in my youth Bible study group. And so to not seem overwhelmed or defeated, we'll pretend everything is okay. We'll continue to project this worldly view of masculinity that nothing can upset us, or undo us, that we're strong and invulnerable and still right somehow, even though we've just been proven wrong. We'll have that image projected, but when deep down, in fact, we're frustrated, we're hurting, and we're in so much pain because we feel like our identity is crumbling before us and we're just going to try and fake it until we make it. It's a view of masculinity that's killing us. In 2015, 2,815 people committed suicide in Australia. Out of that number, over 2,100 of those were men. That's an astounding figure. It's not 50-50. Majority of people who commit suicide in Australia are men aged between 30 and 55 all because of this view of masculinity 
is impossible for them to achieve and to attain. This idea that we can't talk about our feelings, we can't be vulnerable and admit when we're wrong or seek to live in peace, continues to be perpetuated. And it's this idea that we should always be right and invulnerable that's killing men. That's why Paul says when you pray, don't pretend everything is okay. Seek to resolve any anger or tension you have with your brother or sister. Have the humility to compromise or to admit when you're wrong. Do not dwell on controversial teaching, but seek peace and move forward. Whatever you do, don't pretend everything's just okay. Not only is it wrong before God, but it's damaging to us as men. It's because of who we are as men in Jesus Christ that we actually can deal with our tension and our anger and our frustration. That we can actually admit when we're wrong or not worry about who's right but move forward together in peace. Because we know the grace of God. We know that the cross reveals us as sinful human beings, worse than we could ever imagine that we could be. It exposes us for who we are and yet shows how much loved we are as well and how gracious God is to us. And it enables us to freely go, you know what, I haven't got it all together as a man. I'm not the picture of invulnerability that the world wants you to be. But in Jesus Christ, I have strengthened him because he is strong and he is good. In him, we, have, we can be more secure than the world could ever provide or attempt to give us. That's Paul's word to men. Pray and worship God, having dealt with unresolved anger and tension because our identity does not hang on being right, but from the peace that comes from the gospel. To the women in the church, he says this, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. There was something about the way women were dressing the church that was causing disruption in the church. Now, I grew up being told you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but the reality is the cover of a book does tell you something about the book itself. And likewise, our appearance, what we wear, how we kind of carry ourselves, does tell people and ourselves something about what we value, about who we think we are, and where we find our identity. And the kind of dress that Paul prohibits is one that doesn't match up to who you are in Christ Jesus. And from Paul's perspective, he observes the women in the church of Ephesus are dressing more like promiscuous women than women who belong to Christ. Someone who is trying to draw attention to herself, flaunt her beauty and sex appeal. Now we must understand Paul's issue with a woman's dress is more about what it communicates rather than the items of dress themselves. Back then, a promiscuous woman would have been someone who wore lots of gold and pearls, had expensive clothes, had her hair cut in a certain way, braided hair. Today, however, these things 
things are a little different. For example, lots of women have braided hair or they have a hairdo done. They go to the hairdressers to get their hair done. They wear jewelry. They own expensive clothes. I mean, like, I look at myself, I go, I own jewelry. I have some expensive clothes. I don't get my hair cut that often, but I probably should. <laughs> I kind of look at this passage and go, thanks, Luke. I look at this passage and, and go, this kind of describes me a little bit here as well. So what does it look like today, this woman that Paul says Christian women shouldn't be? What does it look like? Well, I think you have to go too far. I think if you turn the TV on and watch any reality TV show that begins with the real housewives of, you'll get a pretty good idea, I think, of the promiscuous woman in modern society. The real housewives of Orange County, Beverly Hills, Miami, New York, New Jersey, Melbourne, and now Sydney. Now, who these people are in terms of their character, in terms of their personhood, it's not for me to decide or judge. But these women are on TV for a particular reason. It's because of their looks and their status in society. They are the trophy wives of rich husbands. They're doled up and glammed to the teeth. They spent thousands of dollars on cosmetic surgery to make themselves look younger and more beautiful. Their clothing is designed to flaunt their body, to give them sex appeal. They spend excessive amounts of time and money on their external appearance, and that to me communicates something about what they see as of themselves. That communicates to me what they see as their value, who they are, their identity. And don't get me wrong, I, I think in many ways in our modern world, men struggle with this as well. But the reason why I think Paul talks about this, particularly for women, and talks about how women should dress, is because it's one our world particularly expects of women today. Our world has a cultural expectation that women should be beautiful. Our magazines, our TV shows, our music, our advertising, particularly our advertising, all has a, promotes the idea that the ideal woman is skinny and is beautiful. And that is of most importance to her, to be skinny and to be beautiful. For men, it's to be right, invulnerable and successful. But our culture says women must be beautiful to have value. But we know that that finding our identity according to what the world says is damaging. And so Paul wants to say, dress according to who you are in Jesus Christ. He says, dress modestly and with propriety. Now, this doesn't mean becoming a prude as such. Wearing only high neck tops, not wearing any makeup ever, never doing your hair, not wearing jewelry. He's not saying that. Paul's choice of words have more to do with how women should see themselves intrinsically rather than just items of clothing particularly. That as a woman, you ought to see yourself with high esteem, with great respect for your own bodies as your own bodies. No one else's. Back then and even today, the woman's body is often not viewed as her own. Society, the media, advertising, all kind of say the woman's body is there to be on display like a trophy. 
to be ogled at. Man's eye candy, if you will. But Paul is saying, no, dress according to who you are as Jesus Christ, loved, holy, and owned by him. Your worth and value is found in him. Therefore, dress and act according to that way. It's important to also note at this point here that in no way are women ever responsible for any kind of sexual abuse that they might receive because of what they're wearing. Really important to highlight that. doesn't matter what a woman is wearing. The, the person who commits such an atrocity is always the one to blame and at fault. And the woman deserves justice for such a horrible crime. What Paul is talking about here has not got anything to do with that. Women aren't to dress modestly for their own protection. Women are to dress modestly for their own godliness. And that will look different for each of you women here tonight. Some of you might think spending $20 on a t-shirt is too much. Some of you might think spending $100 is sufficient on a t-shirt. It might look very different for some of you. Some of you might think that wearing makeup is not good for you. And some of you might think, no, I actually like to wear makeup. And it might be a level of makeup you wear that goes beyond. That's not good for you. It's going to look different in terms of what you guys do, how you guys dress. But the key is, what is your focus when you dress? What is your focus when you wake up and look at the mirror? Is it on doing, sorry, is it on dressing good? Or is it on doing good? Is it on dressing good or is it being godly? As Paul says, adorning themselves with good deeds. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. He talks about doing good like you're putting on clothing. And so Paul kind of moves from talking about your clothing to what you should be focusing on. Women don't focus on your outward external appearance, but focus on doing good because that is of immense value, more value than working on your image. And of course, this applies to men as much as women. As men, we should be focusing on doing good and not on our image. Just as women should focus on praying without anger. But in a culture that tells women that her physical image is the most important thing to her, Paul says, no, the most important thing to you as a woman of God is doing good. Adorning yourself in good deeds. Being known as someone who does good in the name of Jesus. So let me ask you again, where are you focusing? Are you focusing on dressing good to please this world and this culture? Or are you focusing on doing good to please the God you worship? In these few verses, Paul really hammers down, I think, what are the tendencies and temptations men and women fall into when they allow their conduct to be influenced by the world. And whilst we can probably see that what Paul says to man is applicable to the modern woman and to women what is applicable to the modern man, it's important we still recognize that he highlights struggles of men and women because our world still drives specific cultural expectations for men and women. 
ultimately what Paul is calling us as men and women to do is to allow our conduct to be shaped by the gospel, to be shaped by what Jesus is doing in us in helping us to become the men we need to become and the women we need to become. Because the reality is our world needs true men and true women. We're in a world that is desperate for that. Our world needs men who are vulnerable, who are humble, who are not willing to pretend everything is fine, but are willing to work hard at making peace. This world needs women who are strong and who are confident and who are bold, not because they look beautiful, but because they do good in this world. They serve others and love others. Our world is crying out for a better way to men and women. Men are from Mars and women from Venus is not cutting it. Collapsing men and women together as one is also not cutting it. We need a better way, a better way to behave. And the church, as the pillar of truth, the foundation of what, it may, of what God is doing in this world, is the way forward. And we are the hope for this world to see how men and women can relate to each other well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, your love, your kindness towards us. I thank you, Lord, that as men and women, you, you do reveal a way for us to, to relate to each other, to move forward from here, to help us to recognize our differences and yet to see the wonderful unity you create in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we'd be challenged and encouraged tonight. Help us to express the wonderful hope that you have given us as being men and women transformed by grace to be true men and true women in a world that desperately needs that. We pray, Father, that you would be with us. Help us always to not listen to the lies of this world, but to always conform to the wonderful grace of the gospel, to remind ourselves time and time again who we are as men and women in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.